Song of Songs, chapter 3, verses 1 to 47. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrance and fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. He responds, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not, not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. All right, uh, we are going to spend the next little while reflecting on this text that was read for us. On the night of July 13th, 2007, I had trouble sleeping. Now, that's unusual for me because I am a fall asleep in 30 seconds sort of person. But that night, July 13th, 2007, I tossed and I turned and I turned and I tossed and I eventually got out of bed pretty early in the morning to make myself a cup of coffee and start the day. Now, why the insomnia? Well, it was the night before my wedding, before my wedding day, and my thoughts were, or my head was filled with thoughts of what the next day would bring. See, when you come to your wedding day, a lot of life changes in a moment. You get a permanent roommate, you're often moving into a, a new house or an apartment, you get a new set of parents, uh, siblings, cousins, you know, uncles, aunts, all that sort of stuff. And for the Christian, of course, the physical side of the relationship changes as well. And for all these reasons, as well as a number more, I couldn't sleep, or I didn't sleep much. And we've arrived at the place in the Song of Songs where it seems like the wedding day is here, 
Most commentators put it right at the beginning of chapter 4, that the wedding parties of the man and the woman sort of arrive at the same place, and they begin to speak to each other. But what precedes the wedding day is a recounting of how hard it was for the woman to fall asleep in the days that came, come before And it seems that her mind is filled with dreams and daydreams of what it will be like when she is finally united with the one she loves. So as we move through this text, we're going to learn uh, about healthy thought lives, but also about what healthy marriages uh, look like. Now, just also just sort of a heads up for future weeks. Next week, we have a guest preacher coming. He's not going to be talking about the Song of Songs. He's doing something else. But the week after that, two weeks from today, there is a poetic description of the wedding night. Now, it isn't crude, but especially uh, for parents of children, you know, just kind of a heads up, FYI, that that is coming two weeks from today. But I have three parts to today's text. First, I want to talk about dreams and daydreams, this sort of strange sequence at the end of chapter three. Then I want to talk about the real Solomon, and then I want to talk about the ideal Solomon. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that the man came to meet his beloved. He came bounding over hills. He came like a superman, but there was this wall that kept him out. And we said the wall was literal, it was probably, you know, surrounded her parents' estate or whatever, but it was also figurative in that a lack of marriage was keeping them from being together. And she told him at that point, until the day breathes, until the shadows flee on the morning of the wedding, until then, go be a gazelle, go be a young stag, go back to the wilderness. So she kindly and gently resisted him, knowing that they aren't married But here in verse 1, we find her lying on her bed at night. And the way the Hebrew is written, it's kind of hard to tell in English, but it suggests a recurrent sort of event. We might say something like, on her bed night after night, what is she doing? She says she is seeking the one her soul loves. Now that that kind of language suggests more than a physical attraction, but she wants to be with him as her whole self. She wants to be united in body, but also to have a home with him, to raise children with him, to build a life together. Now, if you're reading this in a a paper Bible, especially an ESV, you, you may see a heading over this section that says something like, the bride's dream. But the word dream and the word sleep is actually never used in this passage, in this section. Now, it says she's on her bed, so on, on, you know, on beds we do dream. That's the interpretation the ESV makes, it's possible, but the other option is she isn't dreaming, she's just thinking about him. Maybe she's not dreaming, maybe she's, you know, daydreaming, night dreaming, but that kind of makes it confusing. She's, she's dreaming or daydreaming about him, and we'll talk about that more in just a few minutes, but what exactly is on her mind? She describes a scenario, and again, I think this is only taking place in her mind, you know, in a dream or in her thoughts. But she's seeking him, but not finding him. She wants him to be there, but he isn't. And so she gets up from her bed and she wanders the city. Now, this activity of a young woman wandering the city in the middle of the night, um, still dangerous today, you know, still generally not recommended, but it was uh, extremely dangerous, quite dangerous in those days. She's taking an incredible risk to be harmed or mistreated. Maybe speaks to how much she wants to be with him, but in her dream, she is looking. She's going through streets, she's going through squares, but doesn't find him. At one point, she finds the watchman, you know, not not a reference to Alan Moore's graphic novels, but this kind of night police force, you know, that that maybe took care of the city at night, and as she wandered around, she found them, and like, hey, have have you seen my beloved? And they're like, no, or they don't really respond, but, but they haven't seen him either. But right after the watchmen leave, she finds her beloved. Again, a good reason to think this is a dream or a daydream is because 
What is he doing out in the middle of the night, wandering the streets as well? It's quite unlikely that she's there. It's unlikely that he's there. Um, It kind of doesn't make sense, which makes it more probably a dreamer thought. But anyways, it says she grabs him, she finds him. The Hebrew word is she seizes him. You know, it's like this, this grip, this little iron claw. And she says she brings him to her mother's house and into the bedroom. Now, the fact that she brings him to her family's home suggests she is looking for whole life bonding. She's just not out for a good time. She wants him to be part of the family. But what you'll notice is once she has brought him into the bedroom, the curtain goes down. There there isn't any more. The rest is, you know, left to the imagination. There's no description of what comes next. But immediately after the lights drop on this couple that's walked into a bedroom, the woman offers the same warning we've heard before. It's as if the kind of the couple walked in, you know, the door closed behind them, and then just before the scene ends and you go to commercial, like the woman like, you know, pops her head back out and, and, and tells the daughters of Jerusalem, she reminds them, don't stir up, don't awaken love until it pleases. So I want to talk about two big pieces of wisdom that come up in this part of the text. And the first is the role of dreams and daydreams when it comes to love. It's clear that God made nearly all humans to desire sex. We've talked about that. But we'd also say, well, what about animals? Animals want to procreate as well. The major difference between humans and animals is the role of the brain, the the imagination, the higher thought processes. We don't desire sex on a merely physiological or purely physiological level like an animal. We also have the ability as humans to think about it to imagine it, to construct scenarios where it might occur. And recent studies have shown it's, a, it's an incredibly high percentage of the population, 97, 98%, that regularly thinks about sex or has fantasies or daydreams related to it. So the question is, what, what should Christians do about that? The first thing to say is it's pretty clear that this in some way is the way that God has made us. We have these brains, we have these desires, we have these cognitive abilities. So on one hand, we would expect that a young woman on the, on the verge of being married is, is going to dream, is going to daydream about what married life will be like, of what sex will be like. However, because of the sin we are both born into and the sin we have chosen for ourselves, our thought lives, our daydreams, our dreams can easily become twisted. They can easily become focused on, on a person who is not the one our soul loves, And it's easy to give into, to entertain dreams and daydreams about different partners. But I think this woman provides a model for us because her desires, her daydreams are directed towards her partner. She isn't imagining a a handsome police officer or a random stranger, you know, coming back to her with her mother's house. She wants to bring her beloved there. She wants to bring the one her soul loves there. So this is a question. Is it sinful to have daydreams about sex? I hope you don't read my answer as a dodge, but you can always ask me about it afterwards. I would say what the song is telling us is to direct and to focus our thoughts, our intentions, our desires towards the proper place, which is our spouse, if we have one. Yet even then, yet even then, to be watchful and careful for sexual desire is a place of easy temptation. Maybe it's happened to you, many have reported, sexual thoughts about your beloved can easily become twisted. Now, that's all fine and good if you're married. What if you're not? What if you're dating but, you know, not committed, you know, not not sure yet? Or what if you're single and not dating? Well, that's a much tougher question because it's not like, well, all the dreams and daydreams, they just vanish if you don't have a partner. 
What I would say, it's sort of similar to what I said last week, struggle in this area is to be expected. We, we have some control, but not, not a ton of control, about the thoughts that shoot through our heads. But to pull in a couple other scriptures, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 would tell us, tell everyone, single, married, whatever you are, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So part of the struggle with being single then will be, will be a battle to take every thought captive, to not allow your thoughts to overflow into lust. Philippians 4 would instruct all of us, fill your minds with good things, noble things, just, right, pure things. But for those who are married or about to be married, I think dreams and daydreams have a place in how you focus your attention, your sexual attention, towards your beloved. That's the first piece of wisdom. Now the second piece is this, kind of the, the flip side of the coin. Beware the power of sexual thoughts and desires. So this woman is nearly married. I think she's basically getting married in a few days. Um, but even now, even then, she realizes that sex has a power to it, that sexual thoughts have a power to it that should not be awakened until its proper time. And if you go back through her dream, what you see is she is only ready to be with him physically because she's also ready to join her life to his. She doesn't just desire him. She loves him with her whole self. She doesn't just merely want to sleep with him. She wants him to be family. The question the song would pose to those who think they are ready to sleep with their beloved is this one. Has your love reached marriage levels yet? Has your love reached marriage levels yet? And if the answer is no, then sex is off the table. You know, sometimes in our culture, we hear the message, sex is not that big of a deal, right? It's one part of a relationship like any other. It's biological. And for a lot of people, it's part of determining how compatible, whatever that means, uh, with what you are, with the person you're dating. And I think in that case, the world has not too high of a view of sex, but too low. It actually undervalues the power of sex in a relationship to bind people together. I think the Song of Songs, through, through the, the words of the woman, is telling us sex is extremely potent, and therefore you must be very careful not to awaken it, until it or to let it find its proper place. And you know, the more we've understood physiology, hormones, tells us the exact same thing. You know, you, you can read about it. When two people have sex, there's a large release of dopamine that makes you feel pleasure. That kind of makes sense. But there's also a large release of oxytocin, which is a bonding hormone. It makes you feel connected to a person, attached to them. So we can say spiritually and biologically, sex functions as a commitment apparatus. It binds you to another. Hence the cautionary tone. Don't stir it up. Don't awaken love. Don't pursue it until the right time. So especially for those who are dating, the question to ask is this one, has your loved reached marriage levels yet? But let's move on. We've got to talk about the real and the ideal Solomon. I want to read two verses for you, from you from 1 Kings 11. And if you have a Bible, you can flip over there or scroll over there or whatever. Uh, but you can also just listen. That's fine too. 1 Kings 11, I'm going to read from verse 1. It says this, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, among, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for they will surely turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these, these women, in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Now, why do I read that? 
Because we're about to look at a passage from the Song of Songs where it appears that King Solomon is coming to meet his bride. And it's this lovely scene. It's full of grandeur. There's, there's carriages and things. Uh, you know, it feels like a, a, a movie or whatever. But there's also tenderness in the way he talks to her. And the problem we have, biblically, is that the Solomon depicted in the Song of Songs bears no resemblance to the real Solomon. And that's why in this series we've kind of referred to the man as the man and not Solomon because of this disparity. Solomon was not the one-woman man we find in the fourth chapter, but a man, according to the book of Kings, of thousands of women. So what's happening? (laughs) How How do we resolve this tension? I think what's being portrayed in the Song of Songs is a kind of ideal Solomon. Maybe it was Solomon at his first wedding. Maybe this is how he felt with his first wife. Maybe it's just the man Solomon always wished he could be. But it is clearly not the man Solomon became. Maybe think of it this way. Maybe you've uh, heard of uh, British comedian uh, Russell Brand uh, and, and maybe read some of his story that's kind of been in some different news outlets the last little while. But you can imagine a few similarities between uh, Russell Brand and Solomon in this way. Russell Brand was a famous, a famous comedian. He had the looks, he had the money, he had the celebrity to lead, by, by self-admission, a very active sex life. But he was also a man who struggled incredibly with sexual addiction. And he's kind of come out the other side of, 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 of all these things with wisdom to share. He has seen, oh, where does the road lead if you get everything you want sexually? And now he can warn us of the dangers. And if you read some of what he said, he has some views of sex and pornography that are quite similar. I don't think he's a a Christian, but they are very similar to how a lot of Christians would think about this. His life of excess has led him to wisdom. It's not not the best way to gain wisdom, but it's one of the ways. And perhaps it's the same with Solomon. So before we proceed to the ideal Solomon, I want to talk about uh, how the real Solomon acted and what we should be learning from him. But three things that characterize the real Solomon's love life. First, marriage was always a means to an end. First Kings 3 verse 1, it says King Solomon entered into a a political alliance with Egypt, which is a big no-no. They weren't supposed to do that. But it says there, part of the deal was he had to marry the Pharaoh's daughter. Over and over, we read, Solomon married women as a means or as a pathway to economic and political prosperity. It wasn't about delight in the person. It wasn't because he loved them. The women were a means to an end. They sealed treaties. They sealed agreements. Second, Solomon was self-centered. Even the richest and most ambitious men don't get to a thousand sexual partners just to achieve political ends. It's pretty clear from the biblical record that Solomon had a lot of issues with sex, issues with being satisfied. A woman was not a person to be delighted in for Solomon. It was a person who could meet some need he had. I mean, it's pretty obvious. A man cannot even meet the needs of even like one or even a few wives, let alone hundreds or thousands of them. And third, Solomon was led off track spiritually by his love life. It says it all over the book of Kings. Multiple times, his wives led him astray. And it wasn't really that they were exactly were tempting him, but, but Solomon built temples to their gods. He began to worship some of their gods, maybe to please his wives, maybe out of curiosity. We're actually never told sort of the underlying motive, but we do know he had a divided heart. So this is the real Solomon. Not great. <laughs> Marriage was a means to an end. It was a place for him to be self-centered. It was a path that led him far from God. And maybe easy for us to stand here today and wag our finger at Solomon and say, well, don't be like him. But the problem is we all face the same temptations. 
albeit in, in slightly less obvious ways, but they're present for all of us. Isn't it possible that you might begin to view marriage as a means to an end? Isn't it possible that you are sometimes self-centered in your love life? Couldn't it be possible that your desire for sex or need for love or whatever can lead you away from God and not toward Him? Well, of course it is. But we look at this real Solomon so we can contrast him to the ideal one we find in the song. If you look down, this is part three, the ideal Solomon. Look at chapter three, verse six. We see the bride or we see possibly an observer looking out a window up the road into the distance. And what do they see? They see swirling dust clouds. Now, what causes the dust? They say it's the litter of Solomon. So litter, think, you know, uh, strong, you know, muscular servants holding a, a box on their shoulders or whatever, a traveling box. But maybe it was drawn by, by horses. Later, it's called the carriage. We're not exactly sure what it is. But the litter of Solomon is surrounded by warriors, 60 of them, the personal guard of the king. And this is no sort of honor guard, no, not just the reserves. Uh, these are dangerous warriors. It says they have real swords. They're experts in fighting. So this group of men, plus the servants, plus whoever else is coming along, they're kicking up a dust cloud as, they move, as he moves towards his beloved. Solomon's riding in fine style. You can see there in verse 9. It's a litter made of the most expensive wood. It was the cedars of Lebanon. They had posts of silver. It had a back of gold, seed of the finest purple. The daughters of Jerusalem have done the embroidery work. And verse, verse 11 kind of calls all the people watching, hey, go out, <laughs> go see this spectacle. You won't ever have seen anything like this before. It's, it's bright and it's dazzling. It's a king in his most kingliness come to marry his bride. He's even got a special wedding crown. He went to see his mother and his mother gave him a, a, a wedding day crown. The ideal Solomon has arrived to marry the one his soul loves. And how do we know this Solomon is different from the other? Well, chapter 4, it seems that this man and woman are now face-to-face. Maybe they're meeting before the wedding. Maybe the ceremonies occurred and they're talking afterwards. We're not sure. But we do know that this man, this ideal Solomon, he's enraptured with her. Twice he says, behold, which means like, wow. <laughs> like, like, behold, you are beautiful. And then again, behold, you are beautiful. He's impressed. She takes his breath away. And then in quick succession, he describes and compliments seven of her body parts. First, he calls her eyes doves. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember that a dove is a beautiful bird, but also one that nests in inaccessible places. And in the Middle East at that time, brides wore thick veils, sometimes so thick that you couldn't even identify who was underneath. So, he's, so it seems like he's catching glimpses of her eyes through the veil, and her eyes are doves, beautiful, but kind of hidden. Her hair is dark, he says, like a flock of goats leaping down a mountain, which means it's, it's shimmering. There, there's motion and life, volume. I don't know if that's the right word for, for women's hair or whatever, but it's, it's, it's beautiful. He's impressed by how her hair looks. Her teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, freshly washed, all having a twin. That doesn't sound like a compliment. <laughs> and again, I told you, the Song of Songs is not going to be great for your personal content, but in the age before modern dentistry, to have all your teeth to have white teeth, to have healthy teeth. That was unusual for this, this woman when she smiles. It's, it's highly prized. Her lips, he says, he calls them a scarlet thread. There's like a, a, a real theme of color here. He's gone from dark to white to red, and his focus is on her lips, but also on the words that come out of them. When he tells her her mouth is lovely, the Hebrew more accurately suggests that her speech is lovely. The things that come out of her mouth are lovely. 
Her cheeks are are red like a pomegranate. It's a fruit known for its connection to fertility. Her neck is like the Tower of David. Sounds like an insult. (laughs) We We aren't even sure what this tower refers to. But the sense of this compliment is she has a regal bearing. You know, she's upright. She's confident. She's strong. She's assured of herself. And if you notice, he's working his way down from the eyes to the mouth, to the cheeks, to the neck. And finally, he compliments her on her breasts. And by calling them fawns, he of course doesn't mean that they resemble young deer, but rather fawns are shy, rarely observed. You know, they're, they're, they're always hidden away. And the references to gazelles and lilies, as we've discussed, these are sexual or fertility references. But he's saying, I like what I see. I like all of it. Seven body parts. It's a biblical number of perfection. I'm not sure if that's involved here. But notice, there's no crudity. There's no lewdness. He's not crass. But he is a groom appreciating the beauty of his bride. And look at verse 6. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Sound familiar? I will go away to the mountain of myrrh, the hill of frankincense. And Hebrew scholars will tell you that's a euphemism for her breasts. Now what's he, say, what's he saying? He's using her phrase and he's saying the right day. It's arrived. We're here. No more wilderness. No more lonely mountains. As she said earlier in the song, Um, He will lie between her breasts like a sachet of myrrh. And verse 7 caps it off. He says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. No flaw in you. This is a goddess-like description. They are the words of a man enraptured with his bride, just staring at her, enjoying her on their wedding day. Now, what do we learn? What kind of wisdom do we take from this? Well, first, we'd say in contrast to the real Solomon... Marriage is not a means to an end, but a delight in another. And this man is distinctly other-centered. He said, we we have no idea what he's wearing. We have no idea what's going on with him. Later on, she's going to compliment him. But right now, his attention, his focus, it's all her. Everyone else is rushing out. Let's go see that sparkling carriage. And he's like, all I want to look at is her. He isn't there for political reasons. He's there because he loves her for who she is. Husbands, if you're a husband this morning... This is a great time to take stock. What are the kind of words you speak to your beloved? Like, they don't need to be these words, Tower of David, Flock of Sheep, you know, whatever. You don't need to do that. But do you revel? Do you enjoy who your bride is? The one you are married to? Do you compliment her? Do you tell her how much you enjoy being with her? The man is not here because she is going to do something for him, but because he delights in her. The testimony across the scriptures is that true love is love that is drawn to a person uh, for who they are, not for what they can do for you. True love's not self-centered, but actually delights in the other. It's not that you both get together in a relationship and, and I make an argument and then you make an argument for how the other person ought to help you. You both figure out what can you give to the relationship. True love is not self-taking, but self-giving. And true love cannot wait to join itself fully in body and spirit and life to the object of its affection. True love gives. That's what the ideal Solomon shows us. Now, there's a turn here, and I I think it's really important. What happens in a lot of relationships and marriages is this. You meet someone, and they're cute, and they're funny, and they like the same dumb movie that you like, and you fall in love, and, and, and you're deeply attracted to them, and they're attracted to you, and everything's going great, and then a year or two years later or whatever, you, you get married. 
and then a month after you get married or a year after you get married, it, it, the time changes, but three things happen. First, you realize this wonderful, beautiful person you married, yeah, they're kind of selfish. The second thing is this wonderful, beautiful person you married begins to point out all the ways you are selfish. And the third thing that, that happens is you begin to believe your spouse's selfishness is a bigger problem than your own. And the crazy thing about marriages and long-term relationships is it happens for both of you simultaneously. And at that point, you have two choices. Every marriage has two choices. The first choice is this. You can decide your spouse is the real problem in in the relationship. And they better get their act cleaned up. And until they do, you are going to withhold in some way from them. Maybe it's by emotional distancing. Maybe just a ceasefire of some kind. Maybe it's bargaining. If you go down this road, understand, you'll end up like the real Solomon. No, you don't get 300 concubines. But ultimately, you decide marriage is about getting what you want. And that's one choice. That's one place marriage can end up. The other choice is this. You can decide that your selfishness is the main problem in your marriage. And you can take responsibility for it. And you, don't, and you stop making excuses for it. You stop distancing yourself from that truth. And marriage will be not about what, but what your partner can give to you, but what you can give to them. And in that case, you follow this, the ideal Solomon. And here's the thing. If both spouses can say, in their heart of hearts, and they really, really mean it, my self-centeredness is the main problem in this marriage, you actually have the prospect of an incredible marriage. It's clear, the man in the song has arrived at a place where it's about her. It's not about him. It's not about what he can get. Now I say all this standing up here, (laughs) recognizing the hypocrisy in my own heart, because I know there are days when my marriage is about me. And you probably know that too, where you can't rejoice in your beloved because you're focused on getting your own way. So I think the question we have to answer is this one. How do we get there? How do we arrive at the place where I recognize that, that I'm the problem in my, in my relationships? There's an old poem by this guy, William Blake. We wrote it on the front cover of your bulletin because it's a bit hard to follow if I just read it to you. You can read along. I want to read it out loud. And it says this, Love seeketh not itself to please, nor for itself hath any care, but for another gives its ease and builds a heaven in hell's despair. Love seeketh only self to please, to bind another to its delight, joys in another's loss of ease, and builds a heaven in hell's, or a hell in heaven's despite. You're like, what does that mean? <laughs> what, what is this guy saying? He's saying there are two ways to love. He's saying what we've been saying. There are two ways to love. And the first is to love not pleasing yourself, like the ideal Solomon. And if you get that kind of love, he says in his first stanza, you will build a heaven in the midst of hell. But the second way to love is in order to get your needs met, to bind another to your delight, he says. And like the real Solomon, that kind of love will build a hell in the midst of heaven. Tim Keller writes, it's possible to feel you are madly in love when really you are just attracted to a person who can meet your needs and address your insecurities. The only way out of the trap... The only way to avoid sacrificing your your spouse's, your partner's freedom and joy is to get that kind of love from not them. 
See, how do we become less of the real Solomon and more of the ideal Solomon? It's to realize and to believe in your heart of hearts this, that Jesus did not come to please himself. He did not come to take care of his own needs, but gave of of himself so that across the world, heaven was built in the midst of hell. You want to be a better spouse? You want to love the way that you wish you could? You must realize this. Jesus came across the wilderness for you, not carried in a gold-paneled litter by servants, but carried on the rough wood of a Roman cross. He was surrounded by soldiers too, but they weren't protecting him from the terrors of the night. They were the terrors of the night. They ridiculed him. They beat him. They stole from him. And why did he do it? Not for himself. Not because he thought he was going to gain from it, but because he loved us, because he was building a heaven in the midst of the hell that we created. And when the day breathed and the shadows fled on the mount where Christ died, we are assured there of his love for us. It's a love that's so deep and it's so strong, it will give us the power to move towards another in love. Christ's love is so deep that you can admit You are the problem in your relationship. So wherever you find yourself today, you got problems with your dreams and your daydreams, you're off track in that area, you got problems with your love life, with your marriage, with your partner, constantly derailed by your own selfishness, the invitation is simple. Come into the love of Christ. Because it's a love that eclipses our best love. It's a love that will give you the power to love another. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you, and we are grateful that you came to us first. You loved us first and have enabled us by your love and by your spirit to love another well. Help us to walk the path of the ideal Solomon in our relationships, understanding that you are the one who empowers us to do so. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.